listening to the podcast Advertising Playbook, your resource to better understand and execute successful podcast ad campaigns. Hello and welcome to the podcast Advertising Playbook. I'm your host, Heather Osgood. And today on the program, I have Caleb Mansfield. Caleb is Director of Partner Success at Arts AI. Super excited to have him on the show today. Welcome. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me, Heather. So you and I met recently in Dallas. Was that one of your first podcast events? That was. That was my first podcast movement. Um, We've done some smaller events in the New York area, but that was really the first time I got to meet, you know, the entire industry in person. Um, And so it was a great experience and we're, we're looking forward to going to another one next year. Excellent. So I know when you and I talked, you know, I'm fairly new to, to arts AI and I was really kind of interested in learning a little bit about the background of the company, because it sounds like the company wasn't necessarily founded to support the podcast industry, but realized that there was an opportunity to support the podcast industry as you know, the company developed and, and opportunities are seen. Can you tell us a little bit about the way the company was originally constructed and what your role is currently in the podcast industry? Yeah, definitely. So Arts has actually been around for about eight years now, working in the attribution space specifically. And so when we began, podcast attribution was not really a a thing, at least one that, that we had heard of. And so we were working primarily in the streaming space, working with a lot of the major streaming partners like Pandora, iHeart, Spotify, and working to give them that cross-platform attribution view that we'll, we'll talk about in a little bit um, in terms of from, from a technical standpoint. Um, so we were working really closely in the streaming space. We kind of branched out into the more digital media, OTT, connected speakers, things like those, programmatic. Um, but we hadn't really touched podcasting um, until about two, two and a half years ago when we saw a big opportunity to kind of grow our business and use some of our existing partnerships and technology to to help in the podcasting space in terms of attribution. Mm-hmm. And what was it about the podcast space that was really attractive to you guys? You know, it was just coming up more and more in calls and, you know, you're doing our streaming attribution. Can you please help us in podcasting? And, you know, the answer kept being like, not yet, but we're, you know, we're looking into it. And eventually it kind of just worked its way further and further along on our roadmap until, um, you know, we couldn't really push it back any further. It was becoming too much of an ask. And the nice thing about, you know, podcasting, at least from a DAI side, a dynamic ad insertion side, is that the technology um, is fairly similar to the streaming side of things. You know, the reporting and the cadences into how clients want to receive their their data is a little different, and we had to make some updates there. But in terms of the actual technology to that drives the attribution and, and does the conversion tracking um, was fairly similar to the streaming space. And so at that point, it was kind of a, a no-brainer for us to get into the market. And a lot of the partners we were working with on the streaming side were really starting to push podcasting as well. And so our experience working with them and our existing partnerships there um, made it really kind of an easy transition for us, at least initially, to, to get into the podcasting space. Mm-hmm. That's great to hear. I was going to ask if it was a big um, hurdle for you to get into the podcasting space, but it sounds like that transition was pretty easy because essentially it sounds like the technology is relatively similar. Yeah. I mean, we could, you know, I think we'll talk about it a little more later, but you know, the, the DAI technology in, in terms of podcast ads that are um, served dynamically into the actual podcast that's very similar and we were able to kind of quickly move over to that space in in podcasting you know not going to lie there were a few challenges when it came to more of the the baked in 
ads um, mm -hmm. later on when we kind of got more in depth in, in podcasting with our solution. But now that's all being completed on, on our side and we kind of have both the dynamic and the baked in solution. But the baked in one, you know, was a little bit of a hurdle initially, but we've done a, you know, a great job with our engineers and our partners kind of helping to, to work through that and, and finish that solution. Mm -hmm. Great, great. So um, before we get too deep into the conversation, um, I do want to define what attribution tracking really is, because while, you know, most people at this point kind of have a good sense of what it is, I always think that it is important to define it just in case someone's listening and they're like, I really have no idea what they're talking about. So describe to us what attribution tracking is. Yeah. So at a high level, attribution tracking allows marketers to have more visibility into the performance of their advertising dollars. So it's allowing you to see, you know, where your media dollars are going and what's the performance driven by those media dollars. So at Artsite specifically, we track to see whether a user who heard an ad on a podcast, or as I mentioned, streaming, um, actually visited the client's website or mobile app, and then how far along in that user funnel um, the user went. So like I said, by doing so, you're actually showing the marketers, you know, the performance from the different channels that they're running on. Attribution in general, there's a few different types of attribution. And, and like you said, I think we'll get more in depth into that later. But at Artside, we use a pixel-based attribution solution. So the advertisers are placing an Artside pixel um, on their websites. And then we're able to track conversions to any of the, the webs that, uh, websites that contain our pixel. Um, mm -hmm. So currently we can track up to six different events. So you're able to see, you know, did a user visit the homepage, then go to the sign up, um, and so on and so forth, all the way down to their main KPI, which is maybe a purchase or subscription, <clears throat> excuse me. And then on the, on the podcast side or the network side, they're running an art site tracker so that we're able to actually track to see if a user heard an ad or not. So we're kind of comparing the users that hear the ads to eventually going to the client's website for, for that conversion and, and really able to show those marketers, you know, how powerful their, their marketing dollars are in terms of driving real lower funnel conversions that hopefully lead to more revenue and ROAS on their side. Mm -hmm. Great. So I want to touch on this just a little bit. So in terms of the actual technology behind attribution tracking, really, it's looking at someone's IP address and their user agents to say, oh, you know, this person actually listened to the podcast, and then they went to visit the advertiser's website or, you know, took some sort of action. Is that the case? Is that how Artsye works? That's how Artsye's technology works. So we don't use cookies. We don't use mobile ad IDs. Um, for a variety of reasons, one to kind of future proof ourselves from any changes to cookies or, or mobile ad IDs. And then on the made side, which has already kind of happened. Um, so for us, we use IP address user agent. We use a number of other data points as well um, to kind of make our solution more accurate and robust. But those are the two most powerful data points that I would say we kind of need to be able to do the attribution. Um, on the art side side, we don't do a, a rules-based attribution solution. So it's not matching IP address to IP address or any ID to an ID. We're using a machine learning methodology to do our attribution. And so essentially what we're doing is we're taking all of the data points we receive, both from the impression pixel or tracker and the conversion pixel placed in the client's website. We're bringing all of those into an identity graph that we have on our end. And we're trying to identify a user that both heard the ad and converted on the client's site. And then using those data points, we create what we call a confidence threshold or a confidence metric to say, okay, this is how confident we were that this impression led to this conversion. And if it meets a specific rating, we then attribute that conversion to um, impression. And so mm -hmm. it allows us to not just do IP matching um, and it makes our 
attribution more robust and more accurate in that sense. And so it's a little different than maybe some of the other solutions you'd see in the market. But to your point, those are those are the two main data points that that we would look at um, or that we essentially need to be able to do the attribution. So I know that one of the big conversations that happens around attribution tracking is is privacy and, you know, just the privacy policies and are we operating within them? And I'm curious with the AI technology and because you're not necessarily matching them one for one, does that add a level of privacy protection into the platform that maybe others don't have? I would say, it, you know, it, it, might I wouldn't say that's the main um, differentiator in privacy because we are still using IP address to to do our attribution, whether it's a direct match. I mean, if we have the direct match, that's very helpful. So we would utilize that, but it's not rules based in the sense that if A equals A, then we'll we'll do a, um, a conversion there. But in terms of like using IP address from a privacy standpoint, we're not actually creating a user profile to actually identify a user. It's it's purely probabilistic. So in that sense, there is an extra level of security where we're not actually identifying a specific user and matching them to their IP address at home or at work. Um, we're just creating a confidence rating for a specific user. Um, and then if that is over a certain percent, um, then we will attribute that conversion. And so in that sense, you know, there there is that extra added layer of privacy where there's no profile being built to actually identify a specific person or user, um, just kind of a, we call it like a household profile, we're creating a, um, a confidence percentage around that. Mm -hmm. Okay. And I did want to talk about, you know, the cookies a little bit, because I feel like that has been such a big conversation within the marketing world. And I have never quite understood the difference, I guess, between using a cookie and using an IP address. And one of the concerns that I have had, um, which sounds like it's pretty unfounded, is that with the changes to the cookie, it would affect the progress that we've made with attribution tracking. And no one wants their privacy invaded. Um, we all also are using... <laughs> you know, devices that we know are tracking us, right? And so, you know, I think that there's a really fine line there. And at the end of the day, for me, it is really important that an advertiser is able to use a tool that helps them prove the effectiveness of their ad campaigns, which I really believe attribution tracking is a key part of that. So is there really no relationship at all between the cookie and what attribution tracking is doing in the podcast space? So cookies are used primarily in the, the desktop environment or laptop environment. And so they don't really exist in the mobile environment or um, connected speakers, connected devices. And so because of that, We've actually never utilized cookies for our solution. Um, I would even take it a step further than podcasting. I would say in audio in general, you know, cookies don't really play a part in, in doing a full cross-platform attribution solution because so many users now listen to music, listen to podcasts on their phone, on their connected speakers, in their cars, even on their smart TVs now. And so if you're primarily using a cookie-based solution, you're going to be missing out either on the impression that's occurring or the download that's occurring on one of those devices I just named, or if even if a user does listen to a, a show um, on their desktop while they're working, but then they go and convert on their phone or on their tablet, you would then not be able to match those two together by just using a cookie matching solution because those cookies don't exist in that mobile environment. And so because of that, we've actually never used cookies and we've always primarily um, done IP address and user agent. 
Um, because of that, you know, most of the attribution solutions in the audio space are considered probabilistic matching, meaning you're not matching a specific cookie to a cookie or a mobile ad ID to a mobile ad ID because there's so many different types of devices that users are using. But it allows us to actually track users across all different types of devices, um, all the different devices that a single person's using. And so it makes the, the attribution specifically on the audio side much more accurate and robust. Mm -hmm. And I, I like that you pointed out um, their multiple devices, because I do feel like that's a question I get from advertisers a lot, which is, well, if I listen to a podcast on my phone, but then I go on my, you know, laptop or my desktop to purchase something, how is it making that correlation? Um, and really, it just goes back to that IP address, essentially, right? Yeah, IP address, but a number, number of other data points as well. Like I said, um, user agent, we also look at timestamp, DMAs, things like that. So mm -hmm. um, I think we have a list of about 15 to 20 different data points that actually go into our decision making when it comes to that confidence rating. Um, but like you said, IP addresses definitely can be the most powerful and helpful, but definitely not the only one that we mm -hmm. rely on when we're doing that attribution. Mm -hmm. Great. So let's talk a little bit about kind of pixel tracking in general. So, um, you know, if you're a podcaster and you're listening and you're like, I don't quite understand this, um, I want to break down kind of the differences between, you know, using the actual pixel as opposed to doing a redirect or a prefix on your RSS feed and kind of how the two are different and how they're implemented. So if you are using a hosting provider that allows for dynamic ad insertion in most cases, I would say not all hosting providers are compatible with attribution tracking period, which is, I think, certainly a conversation that we could dig into a little bit deeper if we wanted to. But um, if you're doing dynamic ad insertion, you most certainly can do pixel tracking. And essentially, you just put a line of code onto your hosting provider. And then on the flip side, the advertiser is gonna place this pixel in different locations as we had discussed on their website. Is there anything that I'm missing in there that would be important for a podcaster to understand about kind of how to use a service like this? Yeah, so from a dynamic perspective, um, you know, that's, that's totally correct. I would say the only addition to that would be when you're doing um, DAI tracking or dynamic tracking, you can have as many pixels or trackers as you would like on the, the network side. So you can actually break down each show by tracker. So you can actually see the different performance from each tracker. And then mm -hmm. if you're running on multiple networks from a marketing perspective, um, you can break down the different networks as well. So it's a really custom and robust solution in that sense. It does require, you know, the networks to place the um, trackers or pixels correctly. And it also requires them to take them down when the ad is not running. So there's a little more work from the network side in that sense um, for DAI tracking. Um, but it is in that, you know, the fact that it only tracks the podcast that the ad is actually on um, is really helpful and makes the data super accurate. And then, like you said, on the conversion side, um, they're placing the art site picks on the different sites that they would like to, to actually track performance to. So that's kind of how it would work on the DAI side. Um, and everything you said is, is completely mm -hmm. accurate there. Mm -hmm. I think it's really important for advertisers to also realize it seems like um, my experience has been some of the advertisers that we deal with are really familiar with pixels and we send them the instructions. They're like, no problem. They get it set up easy peasy, we're all good. Um, other advertisers are not as familiar and sometimes they have a difficult time actually getting the pixel placed. Then a yeah. lot of times they'll place the pixel 
in one location in one strange location where I'm like, why did they put it there? That didn't actually give us any information. So walk through kind of what your experience has been about where best locations are for an advertiser to place a pixel on their site. Yeah. So it, I, we've been there before, Heather, so I totally understand the, uh, not, maybe not frustrations, but just some of the stories you, you've had. Um, so when it comes to pixel placement, like you said, it, it can be uh, it can be a little overwhelming, especially if you haven't placed a pixel before. The Archive Pixel and most of the other pixels in the industry are simple one-by-one -one image trackers um, or image pixels. So that's what we kind of call them. And so I think when a lot of people see pixels, they're like, oh my gosh, what do I do with this? We've never placed one before. Most of the times they actually have placed them before if they've done, you know, any kind of social media um, tracking, Facebook pixel, Instagram pixel, things like that. And so that's usually where I start and saying like, hey, if you've ever placed any of these platforms before, it's actually just the same thing. Like you just have to do this. Um, luckily, most advertisers now are using some form of tag manager, uh, Google tag manager being the most popular. And so the great thing is that Google has a lot of resources in terms of how to place that pixel correctly on your site. And a lot of times we will, um, you know, move advertisers to some collateral from Google that kind of walks them through. And we've actually created our own collateral to kind of walk them through um, Google Tag Manager, Telium, some of the other tag managers as well. So most of the advertisers, once they kind of simplify it and just look at those sheets, it's, it's very helpful. Um, the biggest issue is when they actually don't have a tag manager and they're going to be placing it directly on their site in, in some kind of header. And it really depends on, you know, how the website was built. It's, that's the unfortunate part about pixel placing is it, it relies on the client or the advertiser to actually place it within their platform. And so we offer support on our side to kind of walk advertisers through um, the different pixel placement. But if you're working with an advertiser for the first time on pixel placement, and even if they're very comfortable with how to place a pixel, we would recommend starting at a high level, placing a pixel on the homepage, um, maybe a couple of the easy pages like sign up or um, add to cart, where it becomes difficult is if you're adding like dynamic values to a pixel placement, like an order ID or um, a different product ID. And so for people that have never placed a pixel before, you know, those initial events could be a good place to start. And then once they become more comfortable with it, kind of move down that user funnel and, and get some more um, lower funnel events that might have dynamic values tied to them. Mm -hmm. And with a tag manager, does the tag manager allow you to put the pixel in different places on the site? So in within that tag manager, they could just say, hey, here's the pixel and I want it on these different like pages, essentially. So it makes it simpler than having to actually go in and manually place the pixel. Exactly. Yeah. So you can say, you know, this pixel um, value equals, and then you can type in the website on your, on your page that you want it to equal. You could also say, you know, value contains. And then if you put anything with the name of your, your site, then it would track every page. Or if you did, you know, um, advertiser.com slash product, it would then track every page on your, your product page. And so they're very custom. And um, once you kind of dig into them and play around with them, there's a lot of opportunity there to to place a bunch of pixels on a bunch of different pages, but essentially exactly what you said, you can identify which pages you'd like to place the pixel and whether it has to equal exactly that page or whether it just contains that page. Um, there's a lot of different variation there. I always think about websites as being, um, 
as having multiple entry points. So I think it's really important for advertisers to think about it like that. People don't necessarily just always come through the front door, right? They're not always just coming in through your homepage and going in a really logical progression through your site. They can enter in so many different ways. I guess I'm curious if you were able to say, essentially apply this pixel to my entire site, is that in any way going to compromise the data? Like, will it register people multiple times because, you know, maybe they are on multiple pages on the site? How does that work? Yeah, so there's a couple options there. Um, And it's a great point because, like you said, if you Google any advertiser, there's usually three to four different links on, you know, on the Google homepage that you can actually click on to enter the site. It's not just homepage visit. Maybe if it's a clothing site, there's a men's section, a woman's section, a children's section, and you can actually access those directly from Google. And so you might totally skip that initial homepage. Um, So from our side, we offer a couple different options. Um, If you do decide to place a a pixel on your entire website, track all pages, we can do unique unique conversions where we'll just track a user once um, for that specific pixel event, as long as they fall within a certain time period. Um, and that time period is custom and up to the advertiser. Uh, we can also send all events where we're literally just tracking every single event, every single page that a user goes to. So if you click through eight different pages on the website, um, that would be included as eight events. And so it's totally up to the client as to how they want that set up. Uh, and Arti can provide options for both. One thing I, and and kind of just taking a step back to your point, um, one great thing with Pixel Solutions is that you don't necessarily need to use those, you know, vanity URLs or URLs that requires clients to remember a specific backslash to get to a page because we're actually able to track users to, to all different pages. And then we can actually, um, you know, tie those to a specific network or podcast. And so the great thing about Pixel Solutions, to your point, is that you're not asking the client to take an extra step either to remember a URL or to remember a promo code. Um, You're allowing them just to access the website, however, is easiest for them. And then we can tie that to the actual show that drove them there. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Great. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that certainly is the value of it is that the listener not having to remember something that's a unique URL and, or, I mean, the issue I always have is that when we're trying to use unique URLs and promo codes, it's essentially just online couponing and it requires the person to remember and nine out of 10 websites, the minute you go on them, you get a pop-up for 15% off if you use this code anyway. So it's like, if I'm on this site, I get a pop-up, like what's to prevent me from using that code instead of the code I heard in the podcast. So I mean, inherently, there's a lot of issues with those more manual tracking methods. And so this kind of supersedes that. Um, What I'm curious about is if an advertiser wants to actually be able to track conversions in terms of, of, I mean, they can track obviously visitors, right? Like how many visitors came to the site, but they can also um, track dollars, you know, purchased, um, but they have to have the pixel track correctly in order to track um, purchases. Is that the case? Yeah. So tracking purchases just from an aggregate standpoint, um, just like how many purchases were driven is very simple. It worked the same way as a homepage. You would just place the pixel on that checkout page. For us to actually funnel in revenue or an order ID, uh, that's a dynamic value, right? That's going to change with every purchase, essentially. Um, Obviously, you'll have some values that are more common than others, but each purchase has its own value. And so 
what we do is we include uh, macros in our pixels that are called you know revenue value or order id or whatever you want to pass us and you can actually set up in your tag manager for us to receive that value with each conversion essentially and so then we're actually able to report out on exactly how many dollars um, your entire campaign drove we can also send raw conversion reports where you're actually seeing each specific conversion broken out. So if you drove 100 conversions, you would see 100 different lines of data. And then you could see the revenue value or the order ID that's tied to that specific version. So on your back end, you could actually then take our report, compare it to what you're seeing on your end and actually match which purchases from your end were driven, you know, or were attributed from an Artsai campaign or Artsai campaign or from um, any of the network. So it's really powerful to send us those kind of values through the pixel because then you can actually do some checks on your end and compare it to other channels. So um, great point. And, and yeah, it's a very powerful addition to, to attribution. Mm-hmm. Excellent. And I just think it's so important as an advertiser. Um, it might sound a little bit complicated, but I know that your team will help with this and, at, you know, at least in giving instructions on how to execute it. And it's so important because if you ultimately want to get the information out that you're looking for, setting it up correctly is, is just invaluable. And I would say that in my experience, one of the biggest issues that we have had with any sort of attribution tracking is that it's set up incorrectly, right? So it's like, it's set up wrong and everybody goes into the campaign thinking, you know, the best and having the best intentions. And then you get through a couple weeks or you get through, you know, maybe a month and you're like, oh gosh, this was not set up right. Now we don't have the data that we needed. And then everyone's disappointed. So it's important both on the side of the podcaster, as well as the advertiser, that it's set up correctly from the get-go if you want to get this information. Um, And then I also think once you've done it a couple of times, it's not nearly as complicated. It's just that initial setup that might be a little daunting. I want to talk a little bit about lift studies. Um, And so I guess I just want to start by by asking what exactly a lift study is. I know I was at an agency the other day and um, in an in-person agency and said, oh, and, you know, with attribution tracking, you could do a lift study kind of presumed at an advertising agency, they would understand what a lift study was. But when I said lift study, they were like, what's that? So um, explain to us what a lift study is. Yeah, I think uh, the term in general is is kind of broad and can be used in different ways. So I know um, even at Podcast Movement, there was that great panel on, on lift studies, but um, they were doing it more on post-campaign surveys where you're actually interviewing um, users that may have received an ad or gone to the site. Um, which can definitely be utilized. And there's there's plenty of companies that do that. Um, from a digital attribution standpoint and, and how our side does their lift studies um, is a little different. And, and we actually call it incrementality on our end, very, very similar. But if you were to work with us, that would kind of be what the product was called in our, in our suite of products. Um, and so how we are doing that is similar to how you may have done it in the past with a podcaster. It's a little more difficult in podcasting, but at least on streaming where um, you would take you know, 80% of users on a platform and you would send them an ad um, for your advertiser. And then you would take 20% of users as the control group and maybe you would send them a PSA ad or um, an ad that was not tied to the advertiser. So we kind of take take that step out in our approach. So there's actually no control ads being sent anymore. Instead, what we're doing is because we have that identity graph um, with all of those users within that identity graph, we are looking at the performance of the users who were exposed by an ad. So we can know that from that impression pixel that the network's serving. And then we're also t- looking at the performance of the users who are not unexposed by an ad. So 
since we have all the users in our identity graph from that network, we're able to then say, okay, user A did not receive an ad, user B did receive an ad. And then because our pixels place on that conversion page, we can then see the performance of those two users against each other. And so we're taking overall performance of the users who were exposed. And then we're creating a lookalike audience based off the user base that was exposed. And we're tracking that performance as well to kind of create that lift study or that lift percentage um, where we compare the performance of the exposed users to the unexposed users. And then we take a percentage um, based off that difference. And so it's a, I'm not gonna say a new product. We've had it for about eight months now, but it's been really powerful in the sense of helping advertisers understand, you know, how their marketing dollars are doing on each channel. Um, and also just comparing it to what their organic performance would be uh, if they weren't doing any kind of podcast marketing or streaming marketing. And so we've seen it being used more and more and almost required by a lot of partners now to continue using um, different channels. And the great thing is you're not really wasting any dollars on impressions that are used for control ads because we're able to do this all in the back end. And so you can get a full buy um, by doing incrementality that way. Mm -hmm. And um, if an advertiser were to be doing podcast advertising and streaming and maybe some of these other things through Arts AI, they could go ahead and track multiple things as well, right? It doesn't have to just be podcast. So you could do a lift study that included several different channels, it sounds like. Yeah. So our current product, the incrementality is broken out on a campaign basis. So however you'd like to break out your campaign. The great thing at Arts AI is that because we do podcasts and streaming, you can actually combine the two into a single campaign and then look at that performance side by side. Um, and so if you do that way, you can look at incrementality across all your different buys. Um, or if you'd like to see incrementality by channel, you can break out your campaigns by podcasting or specific networks versus streaming or specific publishers. And you could see incrementality for each specific one. So um, in that sense, there's a lot of different ways to kind of customly build incrementality. And we're happy to have those kind of like education conversations in the beginning and, and walk through those different options, pros and cons of each. Um, so it's great that the advertiser kind of has some choice in the sense of how they want to look at um, Lyft on their end. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just think that if you're going to be launching a campaign, you might as well go ahead and try to do a Lyft study because if you can, or, you know, if this incrementality study is something that's an option for you, it's just going to give you really a better view of how everything is performing and ultimately you know, that is really important. So I would, I would recommend that. Now I want to go back and talk a little bit about redirects on RSS feeds and how those are slightly different than the pixel tracking. So the concept is all very similar, but if you are not using dynamic ad insertion, essentially, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, how I've had it explained to me, which makes sense is that when someone hits play, instead of going directly to uh, the address, which is the RSS feed for your podcast, they're going to the Arts AI interface, essentially being tracked there and then going to the RSS feed. Is that kind of how that redirect um, or prefix works on an RSS feed? Yeah. So <clears throat> from a technical standpoint, essentially how it works is the network will take our prefix and, and the difference between a baked in tracker or pixel um, in the sense of the, the prefix versus a DAI one is that we would just have one prefix per network. So I was mentioning earlier on the DAI side, we would create a different tracker for each show. Um, but on the baked in side, there's a single prefix for each network. And so they're placing that prefix 
on all of their RSS feeds, or at least all the ones that they want to they want to want to allow Artsy to track. Um, and then essentially, what we're doing is we're receiving every download um, <clears throat> from that show through the prefix that's placed on our RSS feed. So with DAI, we're essentially receiving an impression or a download kind of in real time or when the download happens that contains the ad, it's being pinged over to Artsy and then we're able to try to identify that user. Um, through an RSS feed, we're actually just receiving every single download from that podcast because there's no ad that's happening in, in real time. It's, it's all baked in. Um, and so, or sorry, there's no ad being served in real time. It's all baked in. And so we're getting every download from the RSS feed through the prefix. And then we have to identify which episodes essentially contained the ad. So a lot of times we work with the agencies or the advertisers or even the networks to provide us those drop dates. And so then when we get maybe the five drop dates over a, a 10 episode buy or a 10 episode time period, we would then kind of remove the data from the five episodes that did not contain the ad and just look at the data from the downloads that um, came from the episodes that did contain the ad. So in that sense, it's a little more work because we have to actually identify which episodes contained the ads. However, it's nice because we're getting every download. We don't have to rely on the networks to place the tracker, then remove the tracker. So there's kind of pros and cons uh, to each of those. But the prefix, like you said, lives on the RSS feed. And then we're getting the data sent to us by the network directly through, a, like you said, a URL to the Artsy side. Mm -hmm. And um, I think the other kind of cool thing about the prefix is that once it's installed, like you said, you don't have to do it for every campaign. Like when, once it's there, it's there. I do always try to caution hosts, though, that you shouldn't put too many prefixes on your RSS feed. You know, the way that it's been explained to me, which I think makes a ton of sense, is that it's kind of like a photocopy. And every time you make a photocopy of a photocopy, it's going to change the numbers a bit. And so you do want to limit it. You don't want to, I don't think you want it to be a free for all and say like, oh, I'm just going to put this, you know, prefix on my RSS feed for these six different, you know, tracking type things. So you do kind of need to identify um, and I, I feel like one of the challenges with this is that as we have more attribution tracking companies out there, it's like, okay, how many prefixes can we put on this one show? Yeah. And so I feel like that's been a little bit tricky. Um, but do you have any thoughts about, I guess, the quantities of prefix that make sense? Yeah, I think most hosting platforms kind of cut it off at three currently from what mm -hmm. I've seen uh, in terms of like the, the major ones. Um, I think the jury is still out a little bit on the exact effect of, of what, you know, happens if you place too many prefixes. I've heard some stories in the market, um, but we, I, I feel like there's been other, um, you know, examples where there have been three or four prefixes placed and there's been no issues. So I, I think it really depends. Um, and I don't have a ton of data or knowledge on that necessarily, but I do know in the industry, I think three is, is kind of the, the max that most hosting platforms um, recommend or even just offer. I think they usually cap it at three. Yeah. I, I don't know that this is something you necessarily can speak to, but I do, you know, I mentioned this earlier and I do think it is so important that, that podcasters understand the hosting providers that they're working with and whether or not attribution tracking is an option because not all hosting providers will allow for it. And from my vantage point, more and more advertisers are wanting this kind of tracking all the time. And if you're a podcast that can't accept this kind of tracking, it's going to really limit your ability to get advertisers. And so I really just encourage people to think about it because um, you don't want to put yourself 
in, you know, a disadvantage for receiving advertisers to your podcast. Um, so that, I mean, that's been your experience as well, right, Caleb? Like you can't put, like not every hosting provider out there accepts these um, attribution tracking um, methods. Yeah, that'd be correct. I, I mean, the good thing is I, I feel like it's really moving in the direction of more and more platforms and, and hosting providers are allowing attribution. So I think hopefully in the near future, that number will be closer to, you know, 100% or at least 90%, but there still are some right now that don't allow it for a variety of reasons. I think the number one reason is generally privacy, but I do think if they kind of dig into the actual attribution solutions out there and they realize that, you know, we're not actually collecting any personal information in the sense of a way to actually identify a user, um, they start becoming more comfortable in allowing attribution. And and like you said, I've, I run into plenty of agencies and advertisers that just won't run on certain networks anymore, or certain platforms mm -hmm. anymore, because they're not allowing the attribution. And um, it's not really also fair to the other networks and, and platforms on their buy if they are showing attribution and then the other ones are kind of just, um, you know, dark in the sense of, right. of showing performance. And so that is becoming more and more common now. So, um, you know, we're, we're really hoping that in the near future becomes more and more um, accepted across the industry. And, and we're definitely already seeing that, which is, which is great. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. The other thing that I really like about Arts AI is that you guys are an independently owned company. I know that there has been some acquis acquisitions that have happened in this space. And, you know, there are lots of great attribution solutions now. Um, and I know each of you are, you know, just slightly different. But can you touch on why kind of the independent nature of, of Arts AI is so important? Yeah, it's a great point. And so <clears throat> Excuse me. So we are a completely employee-owned company, um, completely independent, and and we plan to be that way, um, you know, for forever essentially. Um, and the reason being is that uh, we think for data to be completely clean and for it to be true through third-party um, results, there can't be really an incentive for an attribution provider to provide specific results to a network or a partner. Um, and so at the moment, you know, like you said, we're completely independent. Um, we plan to be. And we feel like that's kind of the true third-party data attribution provider would be someone who's who's more on the independent side. Um, you know, there, like you said, there are a bunch of great solutions out there. So we definitely encourage everyone to kind of just do their research and, and see what's important to them in, in that sense. But that's something that's definitely important to us and, and we pride ourselves on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. So um, I know we need to kind of to wrap it up here. And I'm curious if you had any projections or predictions that you saw might happen, especially around attribution within the podcast space. Um, what do you think kind of lies ahead? Yeah, I think we kind of touched on a little bit in the last question. But I, I really think, um, you know, in the near future, more and more networks are going to start coming around to attribution and, and we're going to see definitely a, a fuller, um, you know, a, a, the ability for advertisers to see fuller performance on their buys and, and have most of the networks and, and platforms kind of accept one form of attribution or not. Um, when it comes to actually DAI and, and versus RSS feeds, you know, that's one where I'm still trying to kind of figure out and wrap my head around which direction it's going to go. Um, there's a lot of uh, folks out there that are super big proponents of, you know, baked in ads, one from the user experience, right? You're having hosts kind of real read those ads in real time. There's no breaks for the the ads to be served. Um, and it's also coming kind of from their voice. It might sound more authentic. Um, but then there's others from the DAI side 
um, that, you know, say it's a lot easier to set up these solutions. They're a lot more accurate, leaves less opportunity for there to be any error. Um, and so I'm really interested in seeing kind of which direction that grows. I think in the next three to six months, we'll have kind of a clear picture, but right now I've, I'm kind of hearing it from both sides. So I, I don't have a prediction there, but, um, definitely looking forward to seeing which direction it goes. And the nice thing for us and, and also most of the networks out there or the providers at this point, um, we have both of those solutions. And so, um, you know, we can support both, but it's still fun to kind of follow that and, and hear from different, um, you know, experts in the industry where they think it's going to be going. Caleb, if we will know in the next three to six months, whether it's <laughs> going to be more DAI or embedded, I will be shocked. <laughs> I have been I'm predicting this for the next, for the last couple of years. I keep saying, I think within a couple of years, it's going to be all DAI. And then I'm like, <laughs> okay, I'm two years out and it still isn't all DAI, but I still really predict that it's all going toward DAI. I know, and I have whole episodes where I talk about, you know, the differences between embedded and dynamically inserted. But I'm always just still a proponent of a host read dynamically inserted ad. And um, I really do think eventually that's where it's going to go because of the technology that can support that where you just you can't support that with baked in. Um, So, yeah, but again, we could talk about that in a whole whole different conversation. Um, But I really appreciate you being on the show today. And um, I, I really am a big proponent of attribution tracking. So if you're listening and you're an advertiser and you haven't used it, I would highly encourage you to check it out. Um, If you're a podcaster and you're not sure if you're set up to do attribution tracking, definitely check with your hosting provider and, and, you know, see about getting yourself set up because it really does make a difference for advertisers. Um, And if people want to connect with you, Caleb, where can they find you so that they can learn more about your guys' services? Yeah, so you can reach out to me directly at Caleb at Artsi.com. Um, I'm also on LinkedIn, so I would love to connect with um, some of your listeners as well there. So yeah, feel free to shoot me an email. I'd be happy to walk you through the solution and, and just kind of talk through some of the things that we talked through today. Um, I, we love hearing from new advertisers and agencies and just seeing what's going on in the market. That's how we learn as well. That's how we got into the podcasting space. So um, feel free to reach out. We'd love to hear from, from any and all of you. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on the show today. Yeah, thank you very much for having me and uh, look forward to talking again soon. Great. Well, and I want to thank you for listening to the podcast. I hope that this episode has been educational for you, that you've learned a little bit about the attribution space and what you could expect and the results that you can gain from it. If you're interested in learning more about podcast advertising, please head on over to True Native Media and download our podcast advertising guide. It will give you all of the ins and outs that you need to know to create a successful ad campaign. Thank you for listening and we will catch you again next time. Thank you for listening to the podcast advertising playbook, your source to a better understanding of the podcast advertising industry. 